The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. So pretty. Hey, if she's the best, funny I've never heard of her. You've heard of Bonnie and Clyde, right? Are you Bonnie? No. I'm not that stupid. Bonnie and her gun-crazy beau, you know what they wanted? Wasn't to be the best. Bestness means a quiet, head-down kind of life. No, Bonnie and Clyde, they wanted fame, notoriety. And boy, did they get it. They also got dead. I'll pass on that. When this is over, feel free to forget I exist. Now, just keep it down while this little darling and I get to know each other better. Damn. Damn. Take top, boys. This is. Oh, oh my God. There are rumors of secret vaults used by top museums to fill the world's most controversial works, but. Yeah, Piccolo Boy here is shocking. Huh. Yeah. Piccolo Boy, as you call him, was recently stolen from a private collector in Paris. <laughs> Valued at $17 million. What else? So we're stealing stolen art? Well, some of these works are merely of questionable provenance. Yeah, high-quality counterfeits. Antiquities, which are my particular forte. Hey, old stuff expert? Old stuff's in here. Thank you, gods and goddesses. <laughs> gray hours now, great 45 minutes. This is what we're here for. Find it, tell me if it's the real thing so we can pack it up and get the hell out of here. I thought it might be this. Why else would I have been chosen? Chosen for what? What are we taking out of here, huh? The Parthenon. Isn't that kind of big? Good morning, London. It's Thursday, April 16th. 2015. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. We'll be with you for the next hour. No, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. So welcome to the show today, and um, don't forget to go to our website, at feedbackjustratemedia.org to leave a uh, comment. Um, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to us on iTunes. So justratemedia.org is your key to all those things. Thank you, Robert. Uh, certainly we're going to be talking about a number of things today. Uh, for my part of the show, as you can probably guess from the opener there, we're going to be talking about beauty and art and their important role in, well, humanity, I guess, in, in, in the history of humanity and our politics and, and everything about what human beings do. Some amazing things said by some philosophers. And I have to tell you, I was inspired to do this topic by listening to your, your show with Mary Lou last week and hearing mm -hmm. some of the opinions that were expressed there, um, you know, in terms of education, um, you know, all the past things. Camille Paglia made some fascinating points. So I was kind of inspired by that, and I'll be carrying on with that in the second half of the show. Well, to me, art is what it's all about, uh, philosophically. Well, you'd be amazed what some other people say who, who you think are mostly about uh, science, politics, uh, philosophy, and what they say about art. Just amazing. Let's start off the uh, show, though. Um, we've got two topics today. Safety first mm -hmm. will be first. Okay, that's a good place to start. <laughs> Following that, after the break, we'll be talking about um, a trade cap. Yes. Ontario's <laughs> cap and trade plan. That's what it so is. safety first. I'm a big believer in safety at work and at home. And at home, I have smoke detectors, fire extinguishers, GFI electrical outlets. I get rid of the ice on my driveway and pick up anything people might trip on. At work, I'm the worker safety rep on our joint health and safety committee. I always wear my proper PPE, that's personal protective equipment, when necessary, and refuse to, re re and, uh, to do any work I think is unsafe and report it. I'm very safety conscious, and so is my employer. But safety is absolutely no concern of any level of government whatsoever. That's a radical thing to say. Is it? Yeah. For you? On this show? Well, 
Yeah, I would say in a lot of areas, not. <laughs> Just the way you came in on and said that. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty black and white, isn't yeah. it? Uh, this week's legislation, which took effect, updating the requirement for CO detectors in the home, carbon monoxide, um, that's what got me prompted. The chances of dying as a result of carbon monoxide poisoning are slim. Only about 11 people per year die from CO poisoning in Ontario. About as many people die every year from falling out of bed, as do from carbon monoxide poisoning. Hmm. That's how rare it is it, with a population of, what's the population of Ontario, Bob? 11 million, 12 million? Something like that? Something like that, oh, yeah. 11 people lately. die? No. My God, 11 people are dying right now as we speak. <laughs> with these statistics in mind, the Ontario government has imposed a financial burden totaling in the tens of millions of dollars on Ontarians to buy CO detectors. Home builders are also on the hook to provide CO detectors in new homes. Much more expensive for them because they're usually hardwired and they're in every bedroom now and uh, smoke detectors are in every bedroom and they ha- they've, they've changed the regulation on, the, on those so that they have to uh, admit a strobe light rather than uh, just an audible signal. Well, that's actually not a bad idea, but again, no role for government. Well, I understand though that the enforcement of carbon monoxide detectors just took Effect yesterday, London London Fire Department going around checking on homes. Actually, it started in 2014, October, for CO detectors. No, but they had a... um, Yeah, they updated uh, it. No, what they had was a grace period, and the grace period ended yesterday. Um, That's what I was to understand. Well, to tell you the truth, the fire department actually came to my house. Really? When I lived in London, knocked on our door, and uh, they were were doing the whole street, basically asking if we had our CO detector and um, smoke detectors and... They actually had the authority to enter into your home unannounced and uh, to check to see whether or not you had them and they were working. Okay. Um, so, on the one hand, I think that when government gets involved in safety, I think it's a misinterpretation of the prime purpose of government, that being of protection of your rights, your life, liberty, and property. People look to government not only to protect them from others who would do them harm, but also from the harm they may do to themselves, and that's wrong, I think. Your safety is your concern. The safety of your family is a mutual concern of the members of your family. For liability reasons, your employer has a concern in your safety while you're on his property doing your job. The safety of others is your concern if they're invited onto your property. And there are a number of other areas where other people's safety may be your concern, but they almost always revolve around liability. Under a proper system of government, insurance companies would take over the greatest interest in ensuring people's safety, especially where members of the public at large are involved. It's absolutely no business of the government except as an employer to its employees, or as I said before, when they're inviting the public onto the government property. Now, if carbon monoxide poisoning was of any great concern, then insurance companies might demand a clause in any life insurance contract requiring you to install a CO detector in your home, much as they do for smoke detectors. Many um, home uh, ownership plans for insurance require you to have a working smoke detector. That's fine and proper, and if you don't like that plan, then maybe you can shop elsewhere or just buy the darn smoke detector, which is a good idea. The government need not make criminals of those unfamiliar with this new regulation on CO detectors, nor the myriad of other regulations governing safety. As an excuse for many of the safety measures put into law or regulation is the fact that the private health insurance is outlawed in Ontario and the rest of Canada, the only jurisdiction in the world to do so other than, of course, Cuba and North Korea. That should tell you something of the ideology underlying such a restriction. Having a socialist health care system as we do has been the excuse for everything from sin taxes on alcohol and tobacco to lower speed limits on highways that can manage much higher speed limits. And having a vested interest in rationing health care dollars, the government imposes measures to limit any risk in our daily lives. Such measures are making this province and country a joyless place to live where every activity is being regulated and scrutinized for its risk to life and limb and any resultant effect on the health care budget. Because that's what it comes down to for the government is the bottom line and control. The cure of such overreach by government is to recognize that the provision of health care and health care insurance is not 
a proper function of any government. And we've, we've mentioned that on the air before, Bob. Mm-hmm. It's just not the role that the government should take. Instead, we wake up every day to more and more restrictions on what to, we can do, what we can drink, what we can eat, what medicines we can take, what lifestyles we can enjoy or not enjoy. Not too many years ago, my family, friends, and I were climbing a mountain in Grossmore National Park in Newfoundland called Table Mountain. A park ranger was there, and we got to talking. She mentioned that because somebody climbed that mountain the previous year and got lost in the fog, the park was considering restricting the public's access. In other words, closing that mountain (laughs) to public access. Yet another example of complete foolishness on behalf of the government when it comes to behaviors that are inherently risky. It's a mountain. Why do you want to climb it? Because it's there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Why not just close the park if someone trips and scrapes his knee on the ground? One day it just might come to that. Absolute foolishness. I remember going to Japan a number of years ago, and I mentioned this to you before, Bob, that they don't follow the same sort of safety. There's a whole different mindset in other countries. You go to Japan and trains whiz by houses, mere feet from the houses. And um, at level crossings, you may or may not find a gar- an arm that comes down. You will find an audible signal, right? And um, it's just quite amazing to see how people are still safe. Trains mm-hmm. are in Japan are, are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Run, running on time, by the way. Is it, you think a lot of the safety issues are coming up because of a pre-issue that occurred, which was a liability issue? I remember we used to have, uh, remember we used to go to the Western Fair each year and put up a booth, right, just with paper on it and stuff. And then one year the government passed a law that said you had to have a million dollars insurance mm-hmm. before you set up a booth at the fair. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? You know, just to sit there in a chair with some papers on a table, you got to have a million dollars insurance. Yeah. And then all of a sudden with that fear of the insurance rates and the consequences, safety became a huge issue. You had to, you know, it it all comes down to this preventative idea, right? Nobody can die. Mm -hmm. Nobody can die. That's the whole thing. Nobody can be injured. Why? Because we have socialist health care system. But uh, I don't know how much traveling you've done, Bob. I know you've been down to the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyone who's traveled abroad to a non-Western country especially, or I would call a non-North American country, might find it strange that people still light up cigarettes in restaurants or that trains pass within feet of houses, feet of houses or that cliffs are not blocked off from the public or that some highways have no speed limits or that alcohol is sold in corner stores or in vending machines on the streets or people don't wear helmets while riding motorcycles or bicycles or wear seatbelts while driving. Remember, um, it was uh, Diane Cunningham, the progressive... Uh, MPP in London North Centre, quite a few years back now. I think the situation was a, a member of her family hurt his head. It was a child. A car accident, yeah, yeah hurt, hurt his head because he fell off his bicycle. And now everybody has to wear a helmet. At the time, she wanted every adult to wear a helmet while riding a bicycle. Forced or be fined. You know, you don't have a fine, you go to jail. That kind of thing. You get arrested. Thanks a lot, Diane Cunningham and the progressives, for being absolutely too nanny state, much stepping out of your bounds, using the force of government inappropriately to um, supposedly save lives. Now, mind you, wearing a helmet's a good idea. But as I said before, there is a difference between safety and there's a difference between the role of government. The two don't mix. You know, all such things involved uh, an element of risk. Everything does. The, the fact that I drove here today involved risk. And that risk is borne by the individual. And such risk is not mitigated by the government because, contrary to popular belief, some countries are freer than others. A lot of countries are more free than ours, at least in such matters as governing individual risky behaviors. I think the government should get out of it and uh, stop trying to kid us by saying that they're saving lives by imposing tens of millions of dollars of obligations and onerous um, regulations on what we can do as adults. This is Charlie from Independence, Missouri. Hello, Charlie. Hi, Fielding. A big handshake from the hometown of Harry Truman, the last good president we had. Well, that's debatable, but since I don't like to speak ill of the dead, let's move on to a livelier topic. But I want to talk about Harry Truman. Well, I don't. Goodbye, Charlie. 
Margaret from Blossom, Texas. You're on the air. Fielding, you dear man. I'll be 80 Tuesday. Well, bless you, my darling, and a happy birthday to you. Why, thank you. You know, all this stuff I keep hearing about this big hole in the sky over Antarctica, it, it's frightening me. Ah, oh, yes, the mysterious ozone depletion. I tell you what, my darling, I'm going to send you a copy of my book. You read chapter nine. It absolutely destroys the environmental chicken littles who would scare decent people like you. Thank you for your call, and God bless you, sweetheart. That was Margaret from Blossom, Texas. And speaking of large holes filled with nothing but a vacuum... have to take into account all of the uh, all of the costs of not doing this because if well I know you you can you can roll your eyes but if people's insurance if people's insurance costs go up because of extreme weather and because of uh, of increasing damage that's done and so insurance costs have to keep going up that's a huge cost at the end of the day if we step back and we say, well, we can't do this because potentially there might be, there might be an impact that might be negative in one particular sector. That would be irresponsible because overall, if we say, you know, if we put our heads in the sand and we say, well, climate change is, it's not, the, it's not a problem that we can tackle right now. It's too risky. It's too politically fraught. We're just, we're just afraid to do it. That would not be responsible. And when my granddaughter Olivia looks at me and says, Grandma, what did you do? What I, I'm not going to say to her, I put my head in the sand and I was worried that maybe there would be a cost somewhere that I couldn't explain. And so I didn't take an initiative that would have saved the planet for your grandchildren. I'm not going to do that. Oh boy, there's so much I have to say about <laughs> Kathleen yeah. Wynne's cap and trade, or as you quite <laughs> accurately entitled it, Bob, trade cap. It's a trade cap, yeah. yeah. But before I, I do that, I just want to mention that uh, during the first quarter of the show, I noticed that there was a caller who's trying to call in, and um, I want to mention that the system that we have here at CHRW now has changed for our program. Bob and I are actually in the control room pushing the dials and the buttons and managing the show and controlling it. So yeah, we we've really been on can't a training course for the past several months. <laughs> yeah, it's actually been fun. Made yeah. a few mistakes, but yeah. that's okay. Nobody notices. <laughs> um, so the, the point being, is, of course, that we can't really answer the phone and talk at the same time because, you know, if I'm talking, Bob answers the phone, you'll hear Bob talking to Yeah, because we're in the same room on yeah. the air. Yeah. So uh, we appreciate your calls and your interest, but um, for at least at the moment, if you could, um, if you have a comment to make, we'd love to hear from you at feedback at justratemedia.org. Yeah, there's the odd time we do a, a show in a studio when we have a guest and there's a separate operator. Yeah. That may still come up. It will let you know. Yeah. <laughs> we don't give out the number anymore specifically for that reason, but um, stay tuned. Maybe this will change. We don't know. So cap and trade, or as you say, Bob, trade cap. Everything you ever wanted to know about the motivation for Kathleen Wynne and her liberal government just announced a plan to impose a cap and trade system on CO2 emissions you can get from Ayn Rand's collective uh, essays on uh, called the, the New Left, The Anti-Industrial Revolution, published over 40 years ago. And it was republished a few years later under the more appropriate title, Return of the Primitive. The issue is not solely one of economics. Really? That's, that's been republished? Uh, oh, yeah. Back when it was published, I think it was 70... Mm -hmm. or something like that. They republished it again a couple of years later called Return of the Primitive. And, and what's his name? Peter Schwartz put some more articles into the book. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I'll have to yeah. look into that. Yeah, so be mindful that a copy you got, it may not have all the articles in there. Right. Yeah. Uh, but this cap and trade issue is not just solely in economics. Uh, although the economy will suffer as a result of cap and trade, it's not an issue solely of climate change or climate science as cap and trade will have zero effect on any climate change. The issue is one of the purpose of government, just as in the first quarter, the purpose of government, and the morality of those who, like Wynne, are imposing their immoral, anti-industrial ideologies on everybody. A brief comment I will make on the science, though. Say CO2, carbon dioxide, contrary to Wynne and other rabid environmentalists and others from the left, is not a pollutant. 
It is a naturally occurring molecule in the atmosphere which we breathe in and which we breathe out. It is essential for plant life, and the more CO2 in the atmosphere, the more plants thrive. In fact, that very feedback of plants taking in uh, CO2 and giving off oxygen is what keeps CO2 levels in check, well, that in the oceans. We are currently putting more CO2 in the atmosphere, uh, atmosphere than the oceans can absorb at this time and the plants use, but the oceans do absorb it and the plants do use it. In fact, the more CO2, the better. It is only a minor greenhouse gas compared to, for example, water vapor which is the uh, worst, um, or the best, I should say, greenhouse gas. But its presence may very well help every living thing on Earth. Now, Earth is currently in an ice age. Bet you didn't know that, but it is. It's called the Quaternary Glaciation. We're in the middle of uh, a period of um, interglacial period, they call it. So if that's the case, and that's an abnormality, then we got no place to go but global warming. We had, Whether yeah. we're on the planet or not. <laughs> exactly. Right? You know, all the, although these ice ages may last for millions of years, and this one I think has lasted about two and a half million years so far, um, they're actually rare events on Earth, and uh, they're not very conducive to life. Global warming should not be a concern for anyone, not even those with property near the waterfront, as it takes tens to hundreds of years for sea levels to rise because of it. They have plenty of time to get out of the way, in other words. And newsflash, the Earth's climate always changes. It has changed in the past, it's changing now, and it'll change in the future. This does not give governments like WINS the right to do anything about it which will destroy our economy. And by economy, I mean our lives. Bob and I have spoken at length about climate change before, and I would direct you to shows numbers 131 and 134, in particular, where we delved deeper into the science of climate change, including the inconvenient truth that a rise in CO2 levels follows rises in temperatures, doesn't cause them, it follows it, and that the sun drives everything related to climate, not your lawnmower gas power. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and you can find those shows at justratemedia.org. Haven't seen my lawnmower, have you? Was <laughs> <laughs> oh, that that black smoke I saw coming into town? <laughs> And briefly, on the economy, Wynne has admitted she does not yet know how her cap-and-trade scheme will affect the economy other than it will, as she predicts rises uh, for the price of fossil fuels, rises in electricity costs, which in turn, of course, raises the price of everything else, as fossil fuels and electricity are part of the transportation costs of everything else. So thank you, Kathleen Wynne, for nothing. You should ask yourself the question, what kind of premier would introduce such a system of control on industry without having the first clue as to the drastic effect it will have economically? The answer, of course, is an immoral one. The political motivation of Wynne should be apparent. She will be seen, at least by her granddaughter, as being kind to the environment, which she is not, and saving the planet, the hubris, which she is helping to destroy. Uh, For what? of the planet without a population of human beings, of humans living in the comfort and personal security that is the result of industrialization. Who cares about the planet if you're shivering in a cave? The real motivation is not only anti-industrial but anti-human. It is anti-human because it is anti-industrial. The two go hand in hand. Individual humans cannot live or thrive anywhere on earth outside of the natural climate of the African Rift Valley from which we evolved without the use of technology. Sorry to bring the bad news, but technology and humanity go hand in hand. Not even the aboriginals of this continent, continent, the natives here, could survive without the technology of hunting implements, clothing manufacturing, shelters, buildings, etc., which, although rudimentary by today's standards, were technologies necessary to survive this climate. Not only to survive, but to thrive and to live far beyond the years of North American natives prior to European colonizations, we have developed technologies which, quite rightly, make man the dominant species on this planet, keeping at bay the hostile elements of other life forms, which will kill us within days. You know, if any one of us, discarding all our technology, stripping off all our clothes and walking into the woods or the tundra or the desert, we'll find out. You'll be dead in days. Nature is harsh. Nature is cruel. Nature is out to kill us all. And if it weren't for our technology here in Ontario, we'd all be dead. 
That's not to say that nature must always be our enemy. On the contrary, with technology and industry, nature feeds us. With technology and industry, nature clothes us. With technology and industry, nature provides us with clues to our own nature and cures to our diseases. Nature can also be beautiful and something to enjoy and to play in. But just ask yourself whether you can appreciate the beauty of nature if you're naked, cold, bereft of all technology, and cast adrift amongst the beautiful spruce forests of the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> you would get over the beauty of the landscape pretty quick as you'd run to find shelter, food, and protection from wolves and grizzly bears and, worse, mosquitoes. Now, do I really believe that with the implementation of cap and trade that we'll all be thrown naked into the jaws of a hostile wilderness? No, of course not. But cap-and-trade is a move toward death and away from life. It is a move to the wilderness over man. The rational is the same and the... Um, rationale, rather, is the same and the intent is the same. Trees are more important than man, says Wynn. Rocks are more important than comfort, says the progressives. Wolves are more important than cars or ice cream or spectacles. The philosophy driving the left led for the moment by win, is a philosophy which sees achievement as a curse and as an insult to the primitive. Win would not be permitted to outlaw all industry, but would if she could. So she does whatever she can, given her powers, to limit industry. I believe that even her in her Wilder's Nightmares, Ayn Rand would not have dreamt of the atrocity of cap and trade on CO2. If she had written it, as one of her measures imposed on the industrialists in her novel Atlas Shrugged, she probably would have crossed it out after having written it, thinking, no, that's just, just too far-fetched. Nobody would believe it. Consider the plan of Wynne and those like her in scheming to squash industry under their heels. Let's make a perfectly harmless gas necessary for life a pollutant. Now let's create a cartel or a monopoly on that production of that gas. Now let's sell credits on the production of this harmless gas to industry so that they can stay in business. Let's sell those credits back to other industries which don't produce as much CO2 and fund our other nefarious socialist schemes, all the while making the voter think we're actually doing something for them. It's, it's so weird trying to make your income dependent on a substance you're trying to ban. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, that's the point. That's, that's the point. Yeah. yeah. Now, while cap-and-trade will be one more straw to break the camel's back and send and shut the doors of yet more manufacturers in Ontario, we should not attack this scheme solely on economic grounds. The fight has to take uh, the higher moral ground. Man's individual life and happiness are the standards which morality must be judged. And using this standard, Kathleen Wynne's plan is immoral. It harms a businessman's right to run a business without interference from government. It diminishes our productivity and standard of living by making goods more expensive. It puts a label of polluter on every businessman which emits CO2 to create its product. It assumes that industry and individual industrialists are criminals who must pay for their sins of producing the goods we buy from them. Environment Minister Glenn Murray had this to say about cap and trade and his plan. Quote, there is no single issue that presents a greater threat to humanity and to our future, unquote. Well, I'd suggest that there is no greater threat to humanity than Glenn Murray and his fantastic fascistic philosophy of destruction and his cap-and-trade plan. While Kathleen Wynne and her government are the agent of this immorality, we should always remember where she gets this philosophy from. At the root are the so-called intellectuals on university campuses lying about climate change or man's role in the environment and his relationship with nature. Also to blame are those in the media who fail to see the root cause and continue to give credence to these immoral ideas. The political opposition is also to blame. Progressive MPP Lisa Thompson said, quote, I am concerned that they're using everybody's sincere interest in doing something positive for the environment, unquote, she said. She went on to say, it's so frustrating because I think they're, they're duping the public. There's no way that they had a chance to go through all of the consultation notes, unquote. So she's not arguing the false environmental concerns in typical progressive manner, suggesting that such a scheme might be acceptable had the government went through a more thorough consultation process. Typical PCer. 
Rest assured that if a progressive government ever came to power, they'd do nothing to change cap and trade except attempt to make it more efficient, as all progressive governments have attempted with every socialist scheme of ruling liberals or new Democrats. And to sum it all up, Bob, we must always look to ourselves when pointing the finger of blame. With rare exception, we take what Wynne and her uh, ilk say tacitly, without criticism. We believe in anthropogenic climate change and that it is bad because we don't take the time to investigate such claims. We believe CO2 is a pollutant because of our ignorance of science and our fear of chastising our children's teachers for teaching such nonsense. We continue to vote for politicians and parties like the Liberals and the progressives, and the NDP, because we don't spend the time to investigate other credible alternatives like the Freedom Party, which I can assure you would be the only party capable and willing to do what's right, the right thing about such wealth distribution schemes like cap and trade. Gareth chose me because I demonstrated supernatural talents as a child. It was a very high honor. So at 16, I took an oath to him to learn the ways of the order. Now you're his indentured servant and live in fear of your life. It's more complicated than that. He's given me many of my powers. Oh, what power could possibly be worth your freedom? When I was young, I was caught in a house fire. I escaped, but my face was badly scarred. Gareth taught me to create the illusion of beauty. Are you saying that the face that I am looking at is not real? It takes much of my inner power to maintain this aura. How could you trade something so superficial as a pretty face for your immortal soul? Do you know what it's like to look into the mirror and cringe? To be afraid to be seen in public? To always hide your face when a man looks at you? It's a far worse prison to live in. Melinda, that which is beautiful is not always good. But that which is good is always beautiful. Consider the nature of a beautiful woman. Nose of a certain average shape. The dimension between her eyes, gloriously average. Distance from nose tip to chin dimple, average perfection. Now, if each feature in every respect is exquisitely average, then we call that woman beautiful. Thus, the trick that nature plays upon mankind and the artist is to reveal the average as breathtaking. You understand, Julie? My back hurts. Supposed to hurt. I'm hungry. Always. I'm bored. Forever bored. I'm not bored in bed. So I've noticed. Tell me your story. Very well. Once upon a time, there was a worthless slut. She'd rather eat than sleep, and she'd rather sleep than work. So she was rather stupid. Good. I like her. Was she very beautiful? Yes. Her face was very beautiful. So was her body. That's why this great artist chose her to be his model. Sit still, Julie. Will your model lead a long and happy life? Long and miserable, I should think. Do you love her, Max? Of course. For her body? Or soul? You have no detectable soul. Enough of this. Go to your room, Julie. I have a wife to attend. Your first wife or your second wife, Max? It's all the same. Wow. <laughs> there was a lot going on there in that exchange between Max the artist and his model, Julie. I understand you just watched part of that episode. You were well, when me. you sent me the clips, yeah. I just got engrossed in that. That's a good episode. <laughs> it was. Of Columbo, believe it or not. That's a very unusual kind of a script for, for his show, for that show. Now, the artist Max, whom we just heard expressing his views on the subject of beauty, I would say, and I don't know if you'd agree with me, I might be going out in a limp here, I, I would say he has intrinsic views about art and his craft. He has values and standards, but they seem to be somewhat contradictory and non-objective. 
I mean, he talks about the nature of a beautiful woman being very average. This whole thing is about averageness and and this perfect averageness versus his contrast and his story about, you know, her being a worthless slut who's stupid but beautiful, which seems to be the standard of this artist. Is that what he values? He's literally saying that he considers the beautiful to, the beautiful to be average and the, and the stupid to be something <laughs> worth emulating in his art, right? And he says it's all the same in response to which of his three objects he regards of greater value. Ironically, or perhaps with full knowledge, Max the artist seems to clearly understand that these values would, quote, doom one to a long and miserable life. He certainly accepted that right off the bat, didn't he? Well, here are a couple of examples of art being assessed in both a subjective and objective manner a little later on in our show today. But I guess the big question that I'm asking is, is art important? And if so, just how important is art relative to other considerations? did some work on this, and I, I rethought the whole thing again yesterday. I told you this, Robert. I went back to one of my favorite philosophers, John McMurray, the Scottish philosopher. And in his 1935 book, Freedom in the Modern World, John McMurray draws a startling and unexpected conclusion in the final chapter of that book, which, interestingly enough, is titled The Final Summary. After spending some 200-plus pages discussing philosophy, morality, politics, reality, freedom, and not art or aesthetics as such, he concludes all of this with this startling summary in the last two pages of his book. Quote, Just as thought is concerned with truth, so feeling is peculiarly concerned with beauty. A morality that looks upon feeling as something naturally dangerous and untrustworthy is a morality that despises beauty and looks upon it as a side issue. I am inclined to think that the worst feature of modern life is its failure to believe in beauty, says McMurray. For human life, beauty is as important as truth, even more important, and beauty in life is the product of real feeling. If we want to make the world better, he says, the main thing we have to do is make it more beautiful. And then McMurray says something that sounds exactly like the professor from Sliders that we heard just before the the bumper there, who said that not everything that is beautiful is good, but everything that is good is beautiful. Well, McMurray says it a little bit in in a twisted way. He says, nothing that is not inherently beautiful is really good. He says, says it in the same way, almost a backward way. We have to recapture the sense of beauty if we are not to lose our freedom, he says. Now, that's a big statement to make. This is not a side issue. It is the heart of the problem of modern civilization. We shall never be saved by science, though we may be destroyed by it. It is to art and religion that we must look, and both of these depend on freedom of feeling, something I've discussed on the show before with John McMurray. Now, with respect to his inclusion of religion in that equation, it must be understood that McMurray made it clear in his writings that, in his opinion, there was as yet no real religion that is, a religion that has matured to a point where reality in thought and reality in feeling are held as the highest ideals. He regarded all of the world's religions as being very immature, in other words, not fully real. Ayn Rand regarded religion as a primitive form of philosophy, so I guess it's, it's, it's almost the same viewpoint in a way, a way of looking at religion that to me seems quite consistent, though not the same as uh, McMurray's own point. For my own approach, I've always been satisfied with, uh, you know, the religious aspect of this, with the definition of God as follows. God is the supreme being, end quote. That's it. For me, this is no different meaning, although I fully acknowledge that most of the religious world would strongly disagree with me, but it's no different to me than saying existence exists, because the supreme being is existence, and is one of the few phrases about God that should be taken literally, I think. The supreme being, not a supreme being, not one of many. The being of all, existence itself, which accounts for God being able to be everywhere at all times and a whole host of consistencies with the idea that existence exists. To say nothing of the idea that eternity, you know, and the idea of God has no beginning and no end. That's what we say about existence, don't we? So when you say the word being, you mean the state of, of being. being. Of yeah. being, of being. Not supreme a physical being. being. No, exactly. Yeah. And that's what I think was meant by it. Uh, that's how I was always brought up to believe in God. I never took God literally after I was about seven or eight years old. But I, I know people around me don't, don't look at it that way. But that, in my humble op- 
opinion is the way I look at it, and it's all about existence itself. Uh, saying existence exists is the intellectual way of saying it. It concerns itself with truth. Saying God is the supreme being is the emotional, spiritual, symbolic way of saying the same thing, if you understand it in the context of a metaphysical reality. It concerns itself with beauty and with appreciation. I think that's what you're getting into when you get into the emotional aspect. And then there's Camille Paglia. You know, as part of her philosophy of education reform, she said the purpose of education is to sustain the culture, as I heard on the show last week. Um, and she's speaking as an atheist. She, you know, she said, she asked, who are the greatest thinkers? Who are the greatest artists? She says that has to be taught in a chronological way to give a sense of history. And she says that, quote, I was the first to argue that the world's greatest religions should be the basis of such a curriculum because the great world religions include architecture, art, and the great texts. I believe as an atheist, she said, that the world's religions are great symbol systems that give you a sense of vastness and mystery of the universe and are far more spiritually sustaining to students than what's being offered in our educational uh, institutions today. So too with the world's great art and architecture, two of Ayn Rand's favorite topics. And architecture, of course, was a major component in her novel, The Fountainhead. Now, if all this sounds, you know, very artsy-fartsy and seems to have little to do with what many would regard as more important issues, I think that they may, might be wrong. I asked you about that before the show, and you, you put a place to very high value on art and appreciation of art and beauty. Well, it's the pinnacle of the five branches of philosophy, of metaphysics, epistemology, yes. ethics, politics, and aesthetics. And I, I really liked Ayn Rand's Romantic Manifesto. As a matter of fact, I think it's her most a valuable book to me personally because mm -hmm. it dealt with aesthetics. Well, of course, one of the big questions that always concerns people when they talk about art and, well, you want to get an argument started? Start talking about art. <laughs> <laughs> um, is whether it's subjective or objective and what that really means. Rand described art this way, she, or, or beauty rather. Um, beauty is a sense of harmony, she said. Whether it's an image, a human face, a body, or a sunset, Take the object which you call beautiful as a unit and ask yourself, what parts is it made up of? What are its constituent elements? And are they all harmonious? If they are, the result is what we call beautiful. If there are contradictions and clashes, the result is marred or positively ugly. To say it is in the eyes of the beholder, that of course would be pure subjectivism, if taken literally. It isn't a matter of what you do for unknown reasons. Uh, that decides, uh, no, that for unknown reasons you can decide to regard as beautiful. She's saying, um, you can't just decide, I'm going to decide that this is beautiful. Well, yeah, that comes to you naturally from previous processes that have already taken place. Right, when we were talking in the green yeah. room there, I was just saying that um, I, I disagree that art is not, is, is automatic. I think art comes from the values that you've Correct. chosen. Correct. So your art um, follows your choices. Well, get, getting into that here, yes. Uh, you know, she says, because values are created by the observing consciousness, they are created by a standard based on reality. So the issue is, she says, values have to be judged as objective, not subjective or intrinsic. So, you know, what an interesting observation she makes, though, whose significance I hadn't really taken full notice of before. This is what we talked about earlier. She, her point that we do not get to decide what we regard as beautiful. It's not a, a choice you make at the given moment, like you decide to have a chocolate bar or an ice cream cone. You know, you, you can't decide uh, two minutes ago, wow, that's beautiful, I'll come back to it two minutes later. No, I, just, I changed my mind. It's no, because not, it's based on your values, right. which are a lifelong process of developing. Yeah, so, so I'm thinking... It has to do with a person's reaction, and it's different, I think, a little bit between the artist and the person perceiving the art. We either react to something as being beautiful or not. The process by which we arrive at our evaluation has already taken place and is part of our personality and character, which we cannot change in a split moment that we're confronted with what we regard as beauty, right? That's, that's at the point you, you apprehend it. That's why it's an emotionally apprehended thing. So what that tells me is that one can indeed learn a lot about a person by observing what they regard as beautiful. I can't stress how often I myself have al also noticed that people who share similar political ideals, for example, will also share an appreciation for the same art, a lot of the same TV shows, movies, comics, as one another. Uh, of course, you can't rush to judgments based on a single or few examples only. 
Um, I know myself that I enjoy certain TV shows or movies that do not reflect my values in a political or philosophical sense, but I may like the style or the character characters or just something that's artsy about the show that I like that, I, that appeals to me. I've gotten into discussions you know, on Facebook mm-hmm. about that very issue where people will say that this is a good film and I might criticize it for um, its philosophy, but they will correctly point out that, look, the cinematography, looked at the acting, look at this aspect of that art. And you know you're right, you have to look at things in, um, for all of its elements, and something can be good for a particular element. That's right. Now, Leonard Peikoff, in the book Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, made a comment. He said, whether men are good or evil, they characteristically react to art in profoundly personal terms. When an artwork does objectify his metaphysics, the reader or viewer experiences a confirmation of his mind and self on the deepest level. Quote, your approach to values is right, the painting or story implicitly tells him. Your grasp of the world is right. You are right. That is what Peikoff says you're getting from that painting that appeals to you. So with that in mind, coming up next is possibly one of the funnier scenes from the TV series Columbo. Columbo was in a private museum and art gallery where the display on the main floor is what some might call modern art and what, Robert, you and I might call that junk metal we'd sell for scrap or place outside our, in our garbage recycling program bin. Marcy, have you been smoking something awful? We have a customer with a cigar. Huh? Good morning, sir. Morning. May I show you something? Uh, could you explain this? Well, well, you see, we don't explain art. I mean, that's just sort of something you feel. Well, you see, you look at a picture or a, a piece of sculpture, and it either does something for you or it doesn't, you know? Uh-huh. This doesn't do anything for me. Um... It's too bad. Um, intensity. Mm-hmm. That's the title. I see. Well, it's all subjective now. How much is that? Seven. Hundred dollars. Seven hundred dollars. You see, this is um, one of our newer artists. We believe that if you buy his work today, it would be just like investing in a Van Gogh in the 1880s. What does this go for? That particular piece, somebody will pay $1,200 for. $1,200. Mm-hmm. What's this called? Esprit d'un chien mort. Mm-hmm. That means ghost of a dead dog. And that's the dead dog. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, in the right setting, that'll be very effective. Uh And this is... uh, This is the parking lot. Mm Mm-hmm. Forty-seven hundred dollars. $4,700. $4,700. That's right. That's for the house? No. Well, yes, it's a very unique piece, as you can see. Of course, we have others that are more reasonable. I see. Um, now, this here, I see it doesn't have a title. That? Yes. That, sir, is the ventilator for the air conditioning. Well, that's the ventilator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm embarrassed. Oh, no. <laughs> you won't tell anybody. No, of course not. <laughs> you know, I, I think that you would appreciate the more traditional things. If you would come with me, we have some beautiful landscapes upstairs. We'd like to come Well, with I'll tell you the tra- truth about that, ma'am. Uh, I, I've got plenty of landscapes. Thank you very much. You see, my wife, she paints a little. Oh, does she? Yeah, she buys those canvases with the numbers on them. You've seen them around. Yeah, you fill in the spaces with the paints that have the corresponding numbers. They turn out pretty good. Would you excuse me for just one minute, please?
see this stuff. Now it looks like we're going to. This one's broken. Yeah, look who's talking. On the inside. So you, Mike, Art? It doesn't look right. It's not about looking right. Art's about feeling right. And you have no idea what I'm talking about. She makes me feel funny. That's because these other guys, they painted what they saw. This guy painted what is. That's what art's for. It shows who we are. And this one, it's saying how we start off whole, and somewhere along the line, the pieces start to slide. We get broken. That's sad. Yes, it is sad. But you know, it's only sad about the people, not about the art. And if the art reflects a truth about broken people, not necessarily a a literal reality, then maybe it's good art. That audio clip itself was taken from a work of art, Joss Whedon's short-lived Dollhouse series. I don't know if you saw that, Robert. I did, very good series. series, For those who may be wondering, the painting they were looking at was uh, Pablo Picasso. And that was possibly the most enlightening interpretation of a Picasso that I've ever heard. He paints what is, not what he sees. Here I think, oddly enough, that both observers in this case were objective with their very different reactions to the same piece of art. In her, the painting evoked sadness. In him, an appreciation of the greatness of the artist that the painting represented to him and all the meaning behind it. So a very interesting contrast. You know, Leonard Peikoff also wrote that art is not an instrument of literal reproduction. He would agree with that fellow in that clip. An artist's function is not to observe the data of nature, then to report on what he has seen. He is not concerned to transcribe without estimate. The artist has to choose from his observation. He has to slant the data in a calculated manner. This is not an escape from reality, but a unique form of attentiveness to it. An artwork tells man not that something is, but that it is important. And important is not to be confused with the word good here. An artist may not even know his views in conscious terms. He needs merely to recreate reality and and the selectivity inherent in the process does the aesthetic job. That's why you don't do all that choosing at that moment. And, you know... And then he, then he explains that, that example of Ayn Rand's eloquent example of a beautiful woman wearing a glamorous ga- gown with a cold sore on her lips. Remember that one? Oh, yes. Yeah. In, real li- in real life, the sore would be a meaningless infection, but a painting of such a woman would make a metaphysical statement. Then the meaning is the attempt at beauty is futile, and man is ridiculous. He is a worm with delusions of grandeur at the mercy of a reality that mocks his aspirations. Bob, I have to interrupt and say that I saw a painting just like that here at the Macintosh Gallery about 20 years ago. It was a beautiful landscape with a road going through this pastoral scene, but there was a spot in the middle of the road. Just simply a spot, an indescribable spot. And the title of the the, uh, picture? Roadkill. Yeah. That is exactly what Rand is talking like about. Like the dead dog. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the dead dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, whether someone, or someone relates to this or not, this interpretation, uh, you know, whether you do, it, it'll appeal or repulse based on the emotion it evokes in the viewer. An emotion that is not arbitrary, but represents the sum of values of the individual who's feeling it. Remember, as philosopher John McMurray so clearly reminds us, emotion can be real or unreal. Whether it is real or not depends upon the feeler's knowledge and understanding of the particular person, place, or thing to which he's having an emotional response. This doesn't do anything for me, says Lieutenant Colombo, because Colombo's view of reality is very real, grounded in perception, but not without an ability to appreciate art that reflects his values. We don't explain art, says the woman to him. Art is just something you feel. It's all subjective, after which she objectively prices it at $700. (laughs) (laughs) Now, of course, I think the only essential variable in the process is the fundamental base 
basic root values and beliefs of each individual, which are also formed by an objective process whose consequences differ slightly with each and every individual because of their different experiences. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be getting to that point a little later. But an interesting thing, observation by John McMurray, this time from his book Reason and Emotion, published in 1961, speaking to art and religion. He says, the very first thing that confronts us in our way of regarding art and religion bears witness to the absence of emotional reason. Subjective ad attitudes are egocentric. We're egocentric when we regard the world as existing for our private satisfaction as a means to our individual ends. The development of reason consists precisely in the process of overcoming this self-centeredness and becoming able increasingly to escape from our natural bias in our own favor. So as, as long as we think that art and religion are concerned with our pleasure or our consolation, which makes us happy or protects or comforts us, we are in a subjective and irrational state of mind. Now, this is the way most of us do regard art and religion, he says, and science too, for that matter, as you've pointed out many times. Yes. Beautiful things are made for our delight. This is how we look at the matter. Our treatises on beauty start off, almost without exception, by assuming that the real question is why it gives us pleasure and proceed to try to distinguish good art from bad art by the kind of pleasurable effect it has on the spectator. This is an egocentric attitude, similarly in religion, as if God existed for our sakes, as if our success and our safety and our happiness were the meaning of the whole world. So long as we look to art and religion in this way for the satisfaction of our private desires, we can't begin to understand what they are and all our ideas about them will be delusions, expressing only our vanity and self-conceit, he says. A mature art, if we achieve it, he says, as we have now achieved a mature science, would be our way of reaching nearer and nearer through the cooperative effort of many individuals to a real emotional knowledge of the significance of real things, end quote. In other words, you've got to feel it, not just know it, concludes McMurray, about reason's role in our emotional lives. So, you know, considering this light, the reaction of Echo, uh, who's played by Eliza Dishku in our Dollhouse audio bite, about, uh, with dealing with Picasso there, when she said it made her feel sad, that was certainly a departure from this kind of make-me-feel-good type of art thinking, right? Art's not about looking right, but about feeling right, says her fellow art theft <laughs> conspirator. Not about feeling good or pleasurable. When Echo tells him that the painting makes her feel sad, that's an extremely significant moment in, pl in the plot development of the story because he now knows that he's hearing from the real person and not from the original doll from the dollhouse who was originally entered the vault with him. The story gets complicated, but you know <coughs> what I'm talking yes. about. Yeah. That's what art is for, he says to show us who we are. And she just showed him who she was by her reflection on that art. There's no doubt that something uh, that can evoke, evoke such an emotional response would have to be considered good art on some level. But there's another question that comes to my mind, which is not meant to confuse in any way. You know, given a choice between good art that makes you feel happy or good art that makes you feel sad, which would you rather have hanging on the wall in your house? You know, would, would you pick on that? Um, I know I don't always watch TV shows that make me feel good, but I prefer to watch them. <laughs> Nor do I listen <laughs> you know? to music, which are always upbeat. Sometimes right. you like a melancholy tune. So, you know, there are shows that make me feel good that are about sad things that happen in them, which again would mean that it's not the art that's sad, but something within its message, which again might make us feel good if it reflects our view of the real world in some way. And that's pretty much where I'm going to have to end up the, sh the show. Just one more comment from Leonard Peikoff, and this is very important, and that is that art is not meant to be didactic. Even when art does pr pr project a moral ideal, it's not the purpose of art to be educational or proselytizing. The basic purpose of art is not to teach but to show. And, uh, which is not to say that art doesn't teach, it does, but that's not its purpose, even though it may be its function. Um, you know, consider a work of art created with the intention to educate or proselytize might be viewed as propaganda, uh, political or, or mm. commercial. It's very difficult to create such a work and make it what we would call good art. And that, you know, art that's a value in and of itself. But I hope we've all learned a little more about art today. And that's it for our show today. And join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right here. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright I've just been in Paris, sir
on military business. Of course, of course. While I was there, I realized that Goering's birthday is only a few weeks away. Oh, yes, sir, I know. I have the date right here in my calendar. You would. <laughs> so knowing his interest in art, I went to the Louvre and borrowed this. This is Manet's famous painting, The Boy with the Five. Worth at least a half a million. Exquisite. Oh. I now place it in your custody until I return for it. And if anything happens to this masterpiece, Clink, I will have the pleasure of shooting you personally. Please, <laughs> General, I, 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 I. Almost would be worth losing the picture. <laughs> Very funny, General Carter. Very funny. <laughs>